there's that ancient principle that a spad or a press officer should not become the story. And Dominic Cummings became the story. Now, to be fair, I think if you were to look back into the early noughties, Alistair Campbell became the story for a mm. period with the row over Iraq and the argument about the dossier being sexed up, etc., etc. Do you think it was Alistair Campbell who advised Blair to go into Iraq? Britain has one of the oldest systems of government in the entire world. But nobody sat down and planned that system. It's composed of numerous bits and pieces cobbled together over hundreds of years as the need arose. I'm John Burko, and for 10 years I was the Speaker of the House of Commons. I've seen our system of government at its best and at its worst, and I'm fascinated by who gets to operate the levers of power and what people do with them. In this series, with the help of Deborah Francis White, I'll be looking at different aspects of our modern democracy, how they began, how they work, and how much influence each of them has. And we'll try to answer the question, where does power really come from? This is Absolute Power. Hello and welcome to everyone out there on Her Majesty's Internet. I'm sitting here with former Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko. Hello, John. Hi, good afternoon to you, Deborah. And this is our podcast, Absolute Power, in which John is going to be my guide through the corridors of power, which he knows far better than I do, having once taken a wrong turn down a secret corridor and found himself underneath the House of Lords. John, <laughs> it's so wonderful to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. And as always, be educated by you on things that you seem to be a walking Wikipedia entry on. Well, I think that's very I know flattering. nothing about. Um, I mean, I'm much deeper than a Wikipedia entry, just to be very clear. That didn't sound <laughs> flattering at all. A lot of walking encyclopedia on. Now, on this episode, we're going to be talking about special advisors, commonly known on the inside as spads. Uh, so can I ask, what is a special advisor or a spad? A special advisor in a government department is someone appointed to work for a minister on the basis that he or she is offering an additional and alternative set of information and advice to that which is provided to the minister by the career civil servants. So I know that sounds like a kind of dictionary definition, and it was indeed intended to be. Most of the so-called spads, not all, are people of political or media backgrounds, and they are certainly political appointments, Deborah, in the sense that they are the personal choice of the minister, usually the Secretary of State, but some departments, the SPAD might be chosen by a middle-ranking minister, a minister of state. And although they are, for the period of their employment, technically civil servants, they're not in any sense career civil servants. They're there at the pleasure of their minister for such period as he or she wants to employ them. And... The reason why they're taken on is that the minister will often feel, well, look, I've got an army of officials to advise me on policy matters. Mm -hmm. But the career civil servants, who are defined, of course, by permanence, anonymity and neutrality, the traditional 
principles of the British Civil Service, are not party political at all. And very often it would not occur to career officials, or they might not even think it their responsibility, to think of possible political upsides or downsides to a chosen course of action. They might just think, Minister, this is the right thing to do. This is the best use of money. This is the most sensible policy for you to follow for the country but they won't be thinking of the politics of it. The role of the special advisor is to look at material that comes in, policy proposals that are made, stories that develop, and to say, what's the politics of this? And how can I help my minister best navigate this course? So what you've got is a large number of SPADs out there now, typically, I think, a couple per department at least, and sometimes three in a government department. So there might, across Whitehall, easily be 60 or 70 special advisors. I am guessing, but off the top of my head, I would say probably 45 or 50 of them are keen young things who are very political. The issue arises, how special is their advice? Are you saying that they're there to advise on how something might go down politically, strategically? So they've already, say if you're the Minister for Education, you've already got provided by the state loads of people who are specialists in education who can advise you, hey, this might be good, that might not work, we, did, we tried this before. But this person is there to say, mm, strategically, if you do this, you might not hold on to power. Yes, Right. In a okay. nutshell, I think that's true. I mean, that's a very simple and summary encapsulation of the point, but there's much truth in that. I think that special advisor is thinking to him or herself, how will this play with the party? Mm. And very often the SPADs will try to cultivate relations amongst backbench MPs in the minister's party. How will it play with them? How might it play with the party's grassroots? How might it play with those sections of the media whom the minister is particularly interested in cultivating? How might it play with the public as a whole? Are they spin doctors, really? There is a sense in which they are spin doctors. What's I don't say that that's the only characteristic. a spin doctor and a spad? Well, a spin doctor is somebody who specialises really in messaging to the media, including perhaps these days to social media. So was Alistair Campbell a spin doctor rather Alistair than Alistair Campbell was a very upmarket spin doctor, I would say. Yes, he had very great expertise in the media. He was a former Mirror journalist, and I think he had a keen grasp of a lot of media. Although maybe I'm biased in saying this because I, I know Alistair and admire him, but I think he did bring to the party and to the benefit of Tony Blair quite a lot more than just being knowledgeable about the media. I think Alistair Campbell was very strategic and I think he was rigorous and he tended to think everything through. But a special advisor is different in that a special advisor will very often you know, develop a familiarity with policy and you know, the overall programme of the minister for government. So I'm not sure that one should say that the two are synonymous. They're not synonymous. A special advisor may well have media management skills, 
but I think there's more to being a special advisor than simply briefing the media. Can I ask, when you applied to be special advisor, how old were you? I was 32. How special did you feel your advice was? Not like, very. <laughs> like, Not very. How do you specially advise if, you, if you're new, you're the yeah, new kid? I know. And, you know, I distinguish between the two categories, if you like, or genres mm. of special advisors by saying that a lot of them are keen young things, possibly quite bright and politically dexterous, capable of writing a decent press release or a speech, but not hugely versed in policy matters and even less versed in the operational realities of the world. Mm. Wouldn't you be and a special advisor now? Because yeah, in some you, ways I'd probably be a better special advisor now actually on, for example, parliamentary now. or constitutional matters. So you've referenced people going back to the 60s. When was the special advisor invented? I'm not sure that you can date it precisely and say, well, it started in 1961 or 1971. What I think I can say, Deborah, is that there was a considerable increase in the number of special advisors in the 80s and 90s under the Conservatives. But then there was a very substantial further increase when Tony Blair's government took power. And I'm trying to make this point as fairly and non-pejoratively as I can. When I was trying to become a special advisor, let me tell you this, in the mid-1990s... And this is before you were an MP? This was before I became an MP. You wanted to become a special advisor, and that is so you can sort of... Hang out, learn. Absolutely, get I thought it would help me. Party. Absolutely, I thought it would help me cultivate relations with a minister, introduce me to a wider circle. Hanging out in the House of Commons probably wouldn't look bad on the CV. I'd hang out in the House of Commons, Commons and I would have a lovely drink my, in the bar, precisely chatting. I'd bolster my chances of being selected as a candidate for a decent seat and so on. But in those days, and I eventually got a job as a special advisor. I held two over a relatively short period. In those days. Most government departments had one special advisor and very occasionally a larger department would have two. I was told of a vacancy at a department and I was recommended for appointment and number 10 Downing Street said no. I didn't take it personally. I didn't think it was directed at me. I think the feeling was there isn't a good justification for your department having a third. But so then new Labour Under came new Labour, there's no Special advisors left, right and centre. There were a lot more. Yeah, now they would justify it. They would say, well, there's a very considerable job to do in advising on policy, advising on presentation, advising on media But management, do you think it also spoke to their spin-doctory ways? I think it did. I mean, I think that in those early years of new Labour, they were very, very conscious that they were a new departure, a new departure from the Tories. I mean, people will argue the toss about how big a departure they were from the Tories, but they were a new departure from the Conservative governments that had been in power since 1979. And they were also new Labour, so they were different from Labour mm -hmm. of, the, of the past, and they very much wanted to get across their messages to a largely hostile media and, if you like, to limit the damage with very negative media telegraph, mail, express, and to try to find ways of getting their case across effectively in other newspapers and through mm. electronic well, media as well. Well, they were very successful in that. In their and they were successful cool Britannia, I mean, that worked. Oasis down at number 10, yeah. Spice Girls. I mean, it was hugely unpopular with Tories. Of course, there was quite a lot of sniffiness about it. But with a lot of people, those messages started to percolate and resonate and so on. So... You know, was it effective? On the whole, I think it was effective. And they probably took the view that, yes, they would get bits and pieces of bad coverage about it and there would be gripes about 
special advisors being paid quite a lot of money and the bill went up year on year and so on. But they probably thought it was justified. I think there was a more significant development as well, though, by comparison with my time. And that was I sensed, obviously only from the outside, but I sensed the special advisors. And this, I think, has continued under the Conservatives with Boris Johnson. I sensed under Tony Blair that special advisors were becoming more powerful. When I worked as a SPAD at the Treasury and then at the then Department of National Heritage in 1995, I wouldn't have dreamt of issuing instructions to a civil servant. I worked for the minister, initially Jonathan Aitken and Ken Clark at the Treasury and then Virginia Bottomley at the Department of National Heritage, and kept close to that minister and went to meetings with that minister and went on visits with that minister and attended meetings with the minister and officials and would take part in the discussion and so on. But would I assume or be granted executive authorities to start phoning or emailing officials and demanding this or demanding that or demanding the other? Absolutely not. And my sense was that during the new Labour years, the SPAD as the representative on earth of the Secretary of State was regarded as his or her voice and empowered to call the shots and to tell officials what to do and to engage on equal terms with the permanent secretary in the department and so on. Now that was new and if that happened under new Labour, wow, has it been continued and intensified under the Conservatives hugely escalated during the period of Dominic Cummings who behaved you know like some sort of I was going to say minor royal I think probably he would object to the use of the word minor Minor. (laughs) it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Dominic Cummings is a sort of spectacular example of somebody unelected Mm. who's meant to be there in advisory capacity, but kind of almost upended the whole thing during COVID. And then now is just constantly tweeting pretty indiscreetly. It feels like they brought in somebody unelected. And this might be an example of what's been going on but those other people haven't been as high profile or as perhaps reckless in their communications as Dominic Cummings um, uh, uh, and haven't, you know, probably there's loads of special advisors who've done all sorts of things we don't know about, but they didn't drive to Barnard Castle no. for an eye test. 
Is this something where prime ministers are just listening to somebody with a pretty strong worldview and getting caught up in perhaps their ideology or their way of looking at the world? And can that be quite dangerous? Yes, I think it can be quite dangerous. Prime Minister Johnson was widely thought to be excessively interested in the views of D. Cummings and excessively dependent upon him. Now, there are different views, of course, of Boris Johnson, and there is the view that says that he's just not a serious figure and that he's got a sort of Bertie Wooster-ish persona and character and intelligence. There is a another view. Are you going to suggest that Dominic Cummings is Jeeves? Well, actually, that's a, a very interesting suggestion. Yes, I think there is something to be said for that proposition, to be honest. <laughs> no, I think, I think that Boris Johnson is a very sophisticated character, but I do think rather admiring Dominic Cummings' intelligence and apparently administrative skill, ability to get on top of the machine and to drive change, he did, in the early months, hand over a great deal of power and authority to Dominic Cummings. And then during the period when the Prime Minister was unwell, that power was accentuated and it was a very great power indeed. I find that scary, though, because Dominic Cummings is not elected. No, he's not elected. And the difference, I think, also between Alastair Campbell, who was also a very powerful figure in his day and who was often accused of bossing ministers around, mm. issuing orders all over the place. The well, vast the majority th of ministers were nothing like as powerful as Alistair. The difference, I suppose, between them really was that when Alistair Campbell left, he left on good terms with his prime minister. And he'd served for, I think, six years, and he departed the scene, and relations were and remain amicable. When Dominic Cummings left, it was as a result of a spectacular falling out, mm. a power struggle within Number 10, allegedly between Dominic Cummings' people on the one hand and Boris Johnson's partner, now wife, on the other. And in the end, that battle was won by Boris's wife. And so Dominic Cummings was turfed out and... My impression is that he was extremely displeased to be turfed out and appears to feel very considerable resentment about it. Cue explosions left, right and centre of his views, his experiences, his claims, mm. his denunciations of the Prime Minister, to whom only a year ago he would have professed absolute fealty. If a special advisor is unpopular, is there any way we as members of the public can remove them. I'm going to suggest no, because I remember Barnard Castle well, and I remember the Rose Garden. Yes. And we wanted to remove Dominic Cummings then, and we couldn't. Everyone was just like, well, this is outrageous. I still, I'm still, I genuinely am still angry about that, that, that Johnson stood by him and said, but he was only acting as any father would. And I'm like, but we what? that was the whole thing. We were all being told, fight your familial instinct. Don't go and see your mother, mm. even though she's very elderly. Don't go and see your parents for Christmas. Don't go and whatever it was. We were all being told, fight every familial instinct and let your daughter, who's a single mother, look after that brand new baby on her own. 
don't go there. So to then say, well, he's only doing what any father would do. It's like, well, we were all not doing not those doing things that. and no. feeling dreadful about ourselves. Absolutely. And I have friends who did not see their parents on yeah. their deathbed. Yeah. And yeah, so, so I think to... we all know people in that category, people whose parents perished and they didn't see them. That is, I think, what really cut through. Oh. And that did cut through. It cut through big time to the electorate. I think the electorate was absolutely horrified at such a flagrant breach both of letter and of spirit, Why of would... the rules which they they had made had imposed on yeah. the rest of us. Why didn't and on he just apologise? Which they were completely insistent. I just don't understand. Also, I'm still angry that he said, "Oh, well, my wife had COVID." I'm like, then definitely don't move. If you know you've got COVID, you must not move. What they did was so terribly wrong on every single level. And then why didn't they apologise? Arrogance, and on the strength of prime ministerial backing a presumption of impregnability. And do you think that Johnson backed him because he couldn't live without his special advisor? Yes, I think at the time the Prime Minister felt very dependent on Dominic Cummings. I think he really wanted him to continue. He felt, no doubt with all sorts of examples in his own mind, that Dominic Cummings had been invaluable to him and protected him and advanced his interests and acted against or briefed the Prime Minister to diminish the significance of others who might be a threat to him in any way. And so, in a sense, Dominic Cummings was the very definition in his mind of the precious asset. Actually, by then, Dominic Cummings was becoming a very considerable liability because it really is a... There's that ancient principle that a SPAD or a press officer should not become the story. And Dominic Cummings became the story. Now, to be fair, I think if you were to look back into the early noughties, Alistair Campbell became the story for a mm. period with the row over Iraq and the argument about the dossier being sexed up, etc., etc. Do you think it was Alistair Campbell who advised Blair to go into Iraq? There, I don't think so. Is my sense. I have not discussed that matter with Alistair Campbell ever, as far as I can recall, or if we have, only very cursorily. No, there I feel that Tony Blair himself, by that stage of his premiership, had a firm view, rightly or wrongly, which was that it was very important to stick close to the Americans. I think we can now say retrospectively wrongly. Wrong, I don't think we can say rightly or wrongly. I think we can say definitely wrongly. Well, it has certainly brought all sorts of consequences that he didn't want. The well, there were no weapons I'm, of mass destruction. And so. there were no weapons of mass destruction. Yes, I suppose the only reason I didn't put it with the firmness and insistence that you demand of me, Deborah, is that there were a variety of arguments for going to war in Iraq. The presence or otherwise of weapons of mass destruction was certainly a big issue. And there is no doubt that lots of MPs were persuaded to vote for the war on the basis that there were those weapons and that we were in danger of being attacked within 45 minutes, etc. But quite a lot of other people, myself included, voted for the war for other reasons, namely persistent violation of UN Security Council resolutions by Saddam and the egregious 
abuse of the human rights of his own people, for example, the use of the chemical weapons against the Kurds and so sure, on. Sure, but there are so, lots of places in the world where these human rights abuses continue to occur and yet we sell arms to them, we that's don't true. move in on them. It, the, the, what we were told was it was WMDs and 45-minute claim. Mm. Was it not a special advisor who made this 45-minute claim or found this 45-minute claim on the internet? If memory serves me correctly, the material in an unpublished PhD thesis was lobbed in Prime Minister Blair's direction and it's for him to say how significant an influence that was but amongst other material I believe it came to be studied by him and by the government and certainly on the basis that the Prime Minister had decided that the least worst option was to go to war. Alastair Campbell will have seen it as an important part of his role to advise the Prime Minister on messaging, on how to get his case across, on what sort of arguments to prioritise and so on. But if you ask me bluntly the question, is it my sense that it was Alastair Campbell that persuaded the Prime Minister of the merits of going to war in Iraq, the honest answer would be no. If you ask me which particular individual, I couldn't say, and I'm not sure that there was one person who influenced Tony Blair more than anybody else. I think he did come to be messianically convinced of the merits of going to war, and you know the rest is history, because clearly it didn't pan out as intended and there is no doubt that a lot of MPs who were persuaded to vote for the war on the basis of the prevalence of mm. well the presence and prevalence of WMD felt very badly let down or even betrayed do you think when they discovered that they didn't exist do you think that Blair's era prime ministership would be looked back on as a golden age now were it not for Iraq yes by a lot of people, I think it would be. Golden Age is a very dramatic verdict, and some people will think it's too generous. But my own personal view is that the Blair government's achieved a great deal. It's not for me to devote any significant part of this podcast to a lengthy defence of Tony Blair. I don't think that those decisions can be blamed on spin doctors. And I don't think Tony would try to blame them on spin doctors. I think they were his decisions. The only point about which I'm probably slightly precious is that I've never myself accepted that Tony Blair lied about weapons of mass destruction. I've never thought that. Tony Blair exhibits in marked form, and perhaps in more marked form than in some of his contemporaries, a characteristic which most politicians possess, and that is a tendency to hype up, dramatise and hammer home for all their worth mm. arguments in his favour and to play down rubbish or even just ignore arguments which conflict with his position. Now, the effect of that can be to distort mm. by overemphasis, stroke underemphasis, but it's not the same as lying. And I remember at one point when Michael Howard told me in, I think, 2004, that he intended to go into the election campaign accusing Blair of being a liar, that I said to Michael Howard, I thought that was extremely unwise. And he said, why? It has the advantage of being true. And I said, well, I don't think it is true, Michael, but in any case, it won't work for a number of reasons. I said, first of all, on the whole, the British public don't particularly like one politician calling another a liar. It sort of debauches the currency of debate. It's regarded as rather vulgar and demeaning. But secondly, I said... Sometimes people don't like things but can be influenced by them. I don't think it will work. 
I don't think it will work. And it certainly won't make people vote Conservative because most of us on the Conservative benches voted for the war anyway. So it might damage Labour a bit to the benefit of the Liberals, but it's not going to help the Conservative Party. I said, the truth of the matter, Michael, is this. Going around the country, lashing out Blair and calling him a, a liar will make you feel better. It will make you feel better, but it will not be effective. Mm. And what matters in an election campaign and the build-up to it is what will be effective. And if this won't be effective, and I predict you it won't be effective, you shouldn't do it. Did you do it? Yes, ineffectively. (laughs) I've got some questions from our listeners. Carol S says, what interaction did you and other MPs have with Dominic Cummings, Nick Timothy or Alistair Campbell? Were they in any way accessible? That's a very good question. Alistair Campbell wouldn't have been accessible to me because I was a Conservative MP when he was advising Tony Blair. So I wouldn't have sought to contact him. That wouldn't have arisen. I mean, in theory, it could have done on some cross-party matter. But I don't think I ever had reason to contact him at that time. I only came to know him later. And then... As Speaker, I had no interaction with Dominic Cummings at all. My sense was, I can say to Carol, he didn't have a particularly high opinion of MPs. So whether most Conservative MPs had any real contact with him, I doubt. There may have been a sprinkling, there may have been a tiny coterie of people who thought well of him and of whom he thought well, and there may have been contact between them. But my sense was that he regarded himself as operating for the Prime Minister and above the likes of most MPs. My only, this is anecdotal, my only indirect interaction with Dominic Cummings was that he wanted to acquire a parliamentary pass when he took up post at number 10 and I allowed him to have that pass but I indicated that he must stick to the areas of the palace that he was allowed to frequent The particular point was that he had refused to give evidence to a select committee, which in some quarters is regarded as a contempt. He wasn't actually summoned by the committee to apologise, but there were MPs who felt he shouldn't be granted a pass. I, myself, fought loads of battles and often did controversial things. I didn't feel that it was worth having a great fight over. And I remember seeing the leader of the House at the time, Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I said, I am willing, because it does fall to the Speaker to make a judgment in Hmm. contested cases. I said, I am willing to allow Dominic Cummings to have a pass, but I would urge you, Jacob, to speak to him and say that he shouldn't take advantage of it. He shouldn't go to any part of the building from which he's disqualified, so to speak, and, you know, he should behave with some consideration for people on the estate. You know, as a starts, guest, not a tourist. As a guest, if he starts throwing his weight around, mm. you know, and behaving in a way that upsets people, you know, on the estate, and reports get back to me to that effect, then, you know, we may have to look at it again. And I meant that. And, and Jacob said, well, Mr Speaker, I think you've been extremely gracious about it. He said, I will indeed communicate the necessary, and I don't think you will have any trouble on that front. And then he rode away on a pony. And then he rode away on a pony. Will be on Facebook asks, was Dominic Cummings, more Dominic Cummings questions, he's a popular figure in these questions for you, John, was Dominic Cummings just more high profile than previous spads or was his role actually something new in British politics? 
Well, I think he was more high profile, but I think he was something new in that I had a sense. Obviously, I haven't seen all the paperwork. I can't possibly speculate with any accuracy on exactly how many decisions he influenced. But I have this sense that he was a much more centre stage figure in the running of the government than had been the case with previous SPADs or directors of strategy or directors of communications. So I don't think that he was quite in the same category as some of those who went before. Nick Timothy was thought to be a powerful figure for Theresa May. Nick Timothy was very much focused on policy and Fiona Hill was, and she was very much focused on media. Mm. There's a sort of sense in which I think Dominic Cummings was a kind of raging bull and didn't believe there was any boundary that he couldn't surmount or obstacle he couldn't circumvent. As far as he was concerned, anything to do with the government was a matter for him. In that sense, I think he was somewhat different from people who've gone before. And there was, of course, as was often observed by commentators, a kind of anarchistic streak to him. I'm not sure that he could be said to be a conservative. He often behaved in a very unconservative Mm. fashion. And I don't mean that in a snooty or sniffy way, because, you know, he turned up in training shoes or a rather crumpled T-shirt and jeans. I don't mean that. That was just his sort of personal style. I more mean in the sense that he seemed to want to rip asunder the fabric of the British Constitution. You know, he was constantly demanding huge change, for example, in government departments. He appeared to despise the British civil service. He thought the whole system was useless and hopeless and ineffective and needed to be transformed. And... He didn't seem to work as most conservative-minded people do on the basis that what one seeks is something modestly better than the present, Mm. an adjustment to the status quo to try to tilt the ship of state in a preferable direction. Yes, I think he is something of a libertarian and very individualistic and somewhat anarchic. I'm guessing, I'm guessing, and he may contradict this, But I suspect that he has probably read Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State and Utopia, which is a libertarian tract, a very well-written tract, but not a tract to which I am myself partial in any way. But I've just got this sort of sense that Dominic Mm. Cummings would probably approve of that sort of material. So if he was at that point being something of a puppet master to Johnson, who was very much in his grip, but then Carrie at the end of the day was able to kind of topple Dominic Cummings' reign, is Carrie Johnson the most important person in this country? Is she the most powerful person in this country now? Is that the pecking order? I don't know about that. I think she's got a protective instinct towards Boris Johnson, and I certainly wouldn't criticise her for that. I don't know her. Do you think she was just... feel for how influential she is. Didn't like him? Or I was think that the... she felt that he was too influential, too powerful, and she probably thought that he was either actually or potentially, too harmful to her husband and the government and that it would be better if he left. And I think that probably, I don't know, I'm guessing here, surmising from what one knows in the media, but probably her knowledge that he wasn't a great enthusiast for her 
caused them to retreat into their lagers, so to speak, to take up their camp positions. Mm. And that's human nature. If you know that somebody isn't very well disposed to you, and particularly if you've got your doubts about that person anyway, well, that's going to exacerbate the tensions, isn't it? And I suppose in the end, in those circumstances, only one person can win. And on the assumption that the relationship between the Prime Minister and his wife is fundamentally a sound relationship, which these days it appears very much to be, is not a great surprise if she's quite a strong personality, which I think she is, perfectly properly determined to get her point of view across and to try to hold sway, that she would prevail over him. Now... It's so Shakespearean to me. Well, I mean, if Neither of those people are elected, John. No, I know, but if the... If the Prime Minister's wife were... (sighs) demanding access to foreign office briefings and proceeding on the basis of no particular expertise to start trying to call the shots as to which was right and which was wrong, that could potentially be something of an issue. And I emphasise it could be an issue if it's the Prime Minister's wife or the Prime Minister's husband. husband. You know, it's not in any sense a a gender-determined thing. Of course not. You know, it's a a question of whether it would be right for somebody who's unelected to presume a greater knowledge or an mm. entitlement to try to influence matters above and beyond what most people in the citizenry would think is reasonable. What makes it different with Dominic Cummings is that he was a political appointee appointed by Boris Johnson. He's not some respected career civil servant doing his job and being unfairly duffed up by an unelected person. He is an unelected person being fought by another unelected person. Neither has any exalted status in the British constitution. Both have an exalted status in the mind of the Prime Minister. One because she's married to him and the other because he was personally appointed by him. And when those symbols clashed, wow, the noise. Wow. Finally, John... Where would you put spuds in terms of influence in British politics? Where do they sit on the scale from basically irrelevant to absolute power? I wouldn't put them higher than three. But what if they're Dominic Cummings? If they're Dominic Cummings, I would say for a large part of his tenure, uh, he was nearer to eight. He was very, very significant. it really depends on the individual. Very influential, very powerful very strong personality, very determined to have his own way, and very danced attendance upon by Mr. Originally Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson. Um, People, somebody made that point to me the other day that mm-hmm. the Prime Minister was originally called Alexander Boris, and he shifted it around because Boris seemed like more fun more fun and quite a way to cultivate a sort of favourite puppy public persona. (sighs) And extraordinary times. You have been listening to Absolute Power with me, Deborah Francis-White. And me, John Burko. Recording facilities were provided by Spiritland and the music was by Hannah Ledwidge. The producers for The Spontaneity Shop were Ned Sedgwick and Tom Selinski. Absolute Power is part of the ACAST Creator Network and the House of the Guilty Feminist. For more information about this and other episodes, visit absolutepowerpodcast.com. Listener.